0: One of the characteristics of people that recover from being fired or or demoted or some sort of a derailment is they accepted the feedback.
1: Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by the Dean of the Kelly School, I.D. Kesner. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time tuning in, we just want to welcome you to the Kelly family. And let you know and remind you that we exist to help you as an organizational leader. So if you're wrestling with a question or a topic or a situation that you're trying to navigate through as a leader, and we could use that and turn it into a topic for our show, or if you'd like to get a hold of one of our faculty members, ask them some questions about how to lead, especially during uh, this tough time, or you just know of an individual who would make a great guest for our show, send us an email to Pod. that's ROI. P-O-D at I-E-P-U-I dot E-D-U. So whether we're in school, pursuing an MBA, an undergrad, or even, uh, you know, years into our career, we all know of people that are, you know, just all stars. We look at them, they have all the traits. They're, you know, hardworking, they're go-getters. They possess this skill where they're able to just relate and build teams so well. And yet, as we watch their careers go, at some point, it's like they stall out or it's like they get derailed and we're just puzzling and looking at them like, why? How did this happen? They had every bit of success ready. Sometimes that person is staring right back at us in the mirror. So today's episode, we are going to be joined by Carter Cast, author of The Right and Wrong Stuff, How Brilliant Careers Are Made and Unmade, who is also a professor at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management? Carter, welcome to the podcast.
0: Oh, thank you for having me. I'm I'm a I'm a big fan, and I'm a Hoosier born and bred. My folks went to IU, and uh, I love the school.
1: Well, hey, it's an honor to have you back here, um, you know, even if it is virtually. So just thank you for taking time. Let's start out, you know, you have this awesome book about uh, careers and what people do, and not just the, the right things people do, but the things that people do, even unintentionally, where all of a sudden they wake up and realize, I'm not where I've wanted to be. Something, something's wrong. I thought I had everything set. So talk about derailment. What is it, and then how does that relate into your book?
0: The way I chose to define derailment for the book, Matt, was people that had talent, people that had skill, they had game, they had a high IQ, and they had a lot of capabilities, yet they didn't achieve the level of performance and probably the level of seniority that their talent would indicate that they should have. Something happened. They were demoted, they were fired, they flatlined, and were told they were no longer promotable And I wanted to understand why talented people um, get into career trouble. So I looked at people that were real talents. You know, I didn't look at people that have trouble doing the basic components of their job. I looked at people who should succeed and something got in their way.
2: So Carter, let me follow up on where Matt started us. Um, Very early in your book, you share a personal story, and it was a story of what started you on this journey of exploration to research and write about derailment. I I wonder if you might share that story with our listeners.
0: So I I was um, at PepsiCo. I was in my early 30s, and I'd done fairly well up until that point. And from a career standpoint, I was making progress. And then I was called into my boss's office when I was a senior manager level. I was 33, and I was told that I was no longer considered promotable. And um, this fellow kicked me off his team, and I, I asked him, are you firing me? And he said, well, I'm not firing you, but I don't want you on my team anymore. Good luck finding somebody who wants to work with you. And um, it was a rude awakening. I, uh, I asked for more information, and I found out that I was considered to be insubordinate, difficult to manage. Uh, It hadn't really popped up in my career up to that point because I was lucky that my prior two bosses were very hands-off, and so I could, you know, run with the ball. This boss was much more hands-on, more participative in the process, and I recoiled at being brought in, and I learned that I had a derailment tendency that um is called in research by robert hogan who has a hogan development system it's a very deep assessment tool to look at your different values and your different skills and your derailment areas hogan found 11 specific areas that people can derail from a interpersonal reason for interpersonal reasons in my book i look at more than just interpersonal reasons but I took this Hogan test and found out that I have this tendency towards being mischievous and leisurely. Mischievous is, um, oh, uh, let's throw a bomb in this boring budget meeting and liven things up. And uh, um, you know, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time to be funny. Um, I thought I was being individualistic and I was being a huge pain in people's butts is the truth especially my boss. And then I had this tendency towards being leisurely, which is basically picking and choosing what I wanted to work on uh, if I thought it was interesting instead of doing what my boss told me to do. So I was in, I was fine in environments that were freewheeling and smaller companies. When I was in a big division of PepsiCo at the Frito-Lay division, which, uh, you know, spins off about, you know, $10 billion. um, And there's a very strong hierarchical brand structure I couldn't behave like I used to behave. So the changing context, a new boss, and moving into a bigger division of my company tickled or triggered my derailment tendency of being sort of anti-authority. And so I ended up being put in the penalty box for a year and a half and considered non-promotable, and I had to dig my way
2: out of it. Uh, CARTER, I I, I just want to follow up on that. So you get this feedback from your boss. And and in the book, you talk about taking this two-week break um, and, and you decided not to give up, but instead to remake yourself by fixing your problem areas. But I can imagine a lot of people might be dismissive when they get such harsh feedback. And I can even imagine others might give up and simply bail out. How do you pick yourself up and not allow feedback like that in that meeting to crush you. I mean, it could be it could be soul cr- crushing. I'm sure there are plenty of people who would be distracted by that feedback and not be able to pick themselves up. How how do you keep going?
0: Heidi, I'll tell you. One of the characteristics of people that recover from being fired or, or demoted or some sort of a derailment is, in 85% of the cases that people recovered in my research, they accepted the feedback. They did not try to justify their behavior or assume that the other person was wrong. They internalized the feedback and addressed the core issues that were at heart. So, you know, I did go through a couple of weeks of, of you know, yammering about Mike and thinking that he was the problem and complaining to my parents when I went home for a vaca- for Christmas vacation. But I decided, then I came back to the place and sure enough, he kicked me off of his team. And, and I had about a month or three weeks of going up and down the executive row, um, you know, panhandling, <laughs> seeing if somebody would take me in. And I heard consistently that I was considered to be difficult to manage. So I realized that it wasn't just Mike. It was a perceptual issue that was based on my own behavior. So that's when I decided, you know, I don't want to leave this place with a black mark on my resume. I'm going to dig my way out of this mess I've made. And it took, and I got very lucky, I D. I I got, I was lucky. The one person that took me in, he was a Canadian who just moved into the U S division. So he didn't know my reputation. I got lucky there. And then I got lucky that this fellow was a developer of people. And he said, look, you seem like, you know, what you're doing in marketing. You've been doing it at that point. I've been doing it like seven years. Um, But you're going to, you're going to have to work on your attitude and I'll work with you. But if you start doing some of that behavior, I'm going to kick you out, too. So this fellow's name was Stephen Quinn, and I really have to thank him for resuscitating my career. So I did the work and I dug my way out of the mess. And I realized that when I was in situations that triggered this tendency, like a boring budget meeting or when my boss was heavy handed, I just learned the power of restraint to create space between the event and my reaction to the event. I just learned to not speak. And I became much more deliberate and much less impulsive. And I'm impulsive by nature. I am a live wire. And I've just learned over, I'm 57, almost 57 now. I've just learned in those 25 years to just take a break and think before I speak. And so uh, I ended up getting promoted about a year and a half later, And then when I left a year after that, I left on my terms and sure enough, I left to go into smaller companies where that were more freewheeling and I never looked back.
1: Describe to us that moment because obviously for all of us who've received feedback or wrestling with trying to pass blame on, oh, you know what, it's just that my boss was having a bad day. I'm not that hard to, to manage. There's no way I'm I know me. And if they just knew my intentions and knew my heart, like they wouldn't say those things. But yet you you know, when you're in those moments of wrestling with what they're saying and dismissing it and also maybe there is truth. Talk about that specific moment where your kind of eyes just opened up and what what was that like? Was it a mentor? Was it, you know, just reflection? What happened to finally where you said, "You know what? I'm giving in and I'm going all in and I'm going to let someone coach me."
0: It was when I found out that other people didn't want me on their team either. That proved to me it wasn't just about Mike. It wasn't about Mike and my relationship being strained. It was a character trait of mine that I had to own which brings me to a remedy. One of the first and biggest derailers is having uh, interpersonal issues with others. And I have this archetype I created called Captain Fantastic, who is arrogant and um, I, me, mine, and uh, doesn't listen and is um, uh, self-promoting to the extreme and he alienates people. And the number one thing you need to do if you suffer from an interpersonal issue like this, is you've got to get feedback. And people, you know, most people don't like getting feedback because feedback's often negative. But you have to seek to under, well, that's St. Francis of Assisi in 13th century saying seek to understand before being understood. St. Francis of Assisi said that. And then in the seven habits of highly effective people, Covey took the line. So, you know, it's a, it's critical to take the feedback. So get 360 feedback from people because you're going to find truth in all those comments. Look for the patterns that are consistent. The pattern that was consistent on me was you think you're being individualistic, but you're not playing on the team and you don't do what, what we ask you to do. You do what you want to do. And I, I realized it was the truth.
1: And when you think about, you know, that those feedback circles and you're inviting people in because that becomes a very intimate space for, you know, you because you're, you know, kind of exposing yourself and your characteristic traits and everything, you know, to someone to say, hey, I want to improve. Some people just don't have that mindset of wanting to be a teacher and just kind of are just, you know, throwing you feedback because you want to hear it. How do you balance between, you know, who do you invite in and then who do you kind of just keep at arm's length, but, you know, say thank you very much and uh, I'm working on that and kind of just move on.
0: I think one of the critical parts of giving good feedback is don't only give negative feedback. If you're a boss um, and you're giving feedback to people, when they do something well, point it out in the moment. Praise them for good work. Um, And then when you give feedback that's constructive criticism, they will be more likely to take it because they see the feedback in the context of a broader of a of a broader scope of feedback that you give you're not just a negative nelly
2: so carter you started us on the path of talking about captain fantastic which is one of the archetypes i'm wondering if you can help elaborate on a couple of the others that you go through in the book like the solo flyer and and give us a sense of some of these other um, individual archetypes that that could cause derailment
0: Yes, I found five of them as I did research and I did a a bit about three years of research on this um, interviews and reading a lot of, uh, by the way, uh, some of the best research you find is by mining 360s. If you look at 360s and you look at people that are doing well in their company, they're rated in the top 10% in, in overall effectiveness and you look at their competency set and then you look at people that are in the bottom quartile you can see through the 360s what people who are successful, what they do right. And you can see from the people that are having trouble, what they're doing wrong. And one of the common things I saw was a talented person who's an individual contributor gets promoted. Yay, good job. And then the boss thinks because they're smart and capable, leave them alone and let them do let them do their thing. No, now's when they need you more than ever boss because getting promoted and becoming a manager is a transformation of identity. And when I say that, I have to say my source is Linda Hill of Harvard, who wrote a book called Becoming a Manager, and she did ethnographic research. She followed 19 people when they got promoted. And she noticed that one of the things they did wrong was, they didn't realize that you have to move from me to we, and you have to move from player to coach. It, it, interesting to see how good Michael Jordan is in this in we're all watching the documentary The Last Dance he had trouble being a coach and being an owner because he loved being an, he loved being the player and yet Larry Bird when he became the coach of the Pacers was able to make the transformation from being a player to being a coach so when you get promoted you have to have a different mentality you're now you're supposed to enable you're supposed to be a, um, you know, be the person who helps talent bubble up instead of being the star yourself. And so the solo flyer has a hard time realizing that they're not evaluated now on just executing themselves, but enabling execution to occur.
1: So next you have version 1.0 being the next archetype. What is that and, and what's the remedy to figure out how to, how to break away from there?
0: Well, version 1.0 terrifies me because I'm, I'm as I said, I'm, I'm in my mid-50s and I'm a venture capitalist in addition to being a teacher. And so I am looking at new technologies. I look at a series A software companies and these, usually these companies are founded by people in their 20s and 30s. And so I have to stay abreast of changing technologies and market disruptions. And the problem with version 1.0, this person suffers from difficult, difficulty adapting to change. And the difficulty in adapting to change results in them becoming recalcitrant and stuck in their ways. They end up, they get in a groove and the groove ends up being a rut and then they end up becoming a fossil. And these changing circumstances can be anything from a technological disruption that they have to embrace that'll make their jobs better or faster but they don't want to. Or it can be changing circumstances like uh, a changing org structure or a new boss. I derailed when I got a new boss and I didn't adapt to the boss's style. So this version 1.0, the solution here is being adaptable and flexible and staying curious and continuing to ask yourself, is there a better way to do the work than how I'm doing it? And assuming that the other person has some good ideas that you should listen to, so you have to be open-minded. And this is really a danger for mid-career people. You're maybe 40 years old, you've been doing it a while, you're in enterprise sales, and social media comes along and you go, ah, that's mumbo-jumbo. No, no, it's a great form of lead generation. You should be mastering social media as an enterprise salesperson. So... This terrifies me because I've got to stay a little bit paranoid and looking to the disruptions that are going to happen right around the corner, or I won't be good in venture capital.
1: And I think too, especially now, given the fact that so many small business leaders and uh, in the wake of everything starting to reopen from COVID-19, you know, how much more important is that to be able to adapt and to break away from your own mold of we've always done it this way and I'm not changing because this is how it's worked and moving forward.
0: Excellent point, Matt. With COVID-19, where do we have to adapt? Virtual learning, uh, Idi and I are trying to figure out how do you educate in a virtual environment right now for somebody in enterprise sales, this person I talked about, how do you close a sale virtually? What are the best practices when you're never, never having done this before?
2: So Carter, the next one on the list, um, probably the name says it all, but let's explain it for our listeners anyway. It's the one trick pony. Help explain that one.
0: The one trick pony I found to be the most interesting one, frankly. This is somebody who's very competent and rises up the organization in a linear fashion. Then they want to get to the next level, which is something that's more of a generalist. And they're told that they're too narrow and that they're non-strategic and that they've topped out. This was the number one derailer idea of women. And this is a lot of data I ran to see this. This is the number one derailer of women. And it isn't, of course, because women are non-strategic. That's baloney. It's it's access. It's having access so you can broaden your skills and your perspective. So, for example, I interviewed somebody who was um, a controller and she wanted to become the CFO and she had a performance review with her boss and he gave her another good rating and said, you're a wonderful controller. You close the books on time. We always pass the audit and flying colors, blah, blah, blah. And she said, but I'd like to actually become the CFO someday how do i set myself up for that and the boss said oh you're in your sweet spot you're doing exactly what you should be doing don't worry about that and she said no that's not i want to become a cfo someday i would like to know how to get there and he said well you're nowhere near you don't know how to do strategic planning you don't know how to do capital asset management you don't know how to do forecasting um you've never worked with the business units on their annual operating plan you've never worked with analysts on investor relations There's a host of things you've never done and you're not even close to getting it. Whose fault is that, that scenario? Whose fault is that? It's both of their faults, isn't it? It's the boss's fault for not developing the person, but it's also the controller's fault for not seeking out new knowledge and starting to broaden herself. So this one drove me crazy because you'd see all these talented people that were considered non-promotable, but they were outstanding in what they did. They just hadn't taken a lateral move to broaden their skill set, and they probably needed to take a lateral move maybe three or four years before.
1: And as we get into the last archetype, talk about this: the whirling dervish. What is the whirling dervish, and and how do we overcome?
0: So I put in, a, I, I created a website and I created an assessment so you could gauge where you had your own derailment tendencies. So and it's in the book. If you buy the book, in the back of the book is an assessment, and I have captured the number of people who self-reported having one of the five derailment tendencies. The number one self-reported derailment tendency was this one: the whirling dervish. This is somebody whose eyes are bigger than their stomach. They overpromise and underdeliver. Their word is not their bond. They say they can do this by Wednesday, and by Wednesday, you don't have it on your desk. And they suffer because they have, usually, they're a pleaser who takes, who says yes to too many things. They usually are not well organized. They don't have an organizational system. You know, David Allen, Getting Things Done, that book, Getting Things Done, they don't have an approach like David Allen did in getting things done. And they usually have trouble prioritizing the most important things from the less important things. And as a result of that, uh, they slip the deadlines and their boss loses confidence in them and they end up getting in career trouble. This was the single biggest derailer people that I surveyed, thousands of people said they suffered from.
2: So so Carter at the Kelly School we speak a lot about moments that end up turning into momentum and we talk about pivotal moments that are critically important to your career success. Are there particular moments, pivotal moments when there's a tendency to derail and of course I'm I'm excluding extenuating circumstances like maybe a personal illness or a family illness, you know, but are there times, specific times when derailment has a higher probability of occurring than at other times?
0: That's a great question, Heidi. And there were were two moments, and one is going to be um, counterintuitive. The first moment is new boss. When you have a new boss, You can't assume the boss is going to reach out to help understand how you want to do your job or how you're doing your job. You have to treat your boss like a customer and you have to go to that customer and say things like, and I'm saying this, this is the pot calling the kettle black. This is exactly what I did not do with Mike. I should have gone to Mike and said, Mike, welcome to Frito-Lay. I've been here seven years. How can I help you get up to speed? Want me to send you strategy decks, Would you like me to walk through our annual operating plan? Let me know how I can help you. Oh, by the way, how do you like to work? Do you like to communicate over email, phone, at night, early in the morning? How can I help you there? Oh, is there anything that you'd like to take off your desk and hand to me that's not a priority that I can do for you? My job was to make Mike successful. And what did I do instead? I cast him aside and just said stay out of my way i know what i'm doing so pivotal moment one new boss pivotal moment two and this is the counterintuitive part you get promoted lots of people derail about six months after they get a new job they get a new promotion when you get promoted people assume to just pedal their bike faster and harder instead of getting on a new bike when you get promoted The things that got you promoted to that point are different than the things that you need to do to get you promoted again. You have to totally do a reset and seek to understand. And here's what I ask, uh, I tell people to ask their boss. Once you get promoted, ask your boss, two years from now or 18 months from now, what will I have done that makes you say, boy, we're glad we promoted Carter? And then when you get those list of things that are critical, ask what the key performance indicators are. What are the metrics that matter that I should be tracking myself against? When you get a new job, you want to understand what the three to five most important activities are and how you will be measured. If your boss says, oh, I don't know, Carter, we'll figure it out together. Don't accept that. Say, okay, would you mind if I I noodled on it maybe talk to some people who've been in a position like this before. And can I come back to you with some suggestions that we can look at? Sure. So then you go to somebody who's done the job already and you ask them, what are critical? Who are the key constituents that I need to get to know? What are, where are the landmines I've got to watch out for? And then you go back to your boss in another few weeks and you say, how's this for a priority list? So people that get promoted and, get, and derail, they don't take the time to understand the requirements of the new job enough.
1: Finally, as we begin to wrap up, uh, I want to talk about for a lot of individuals who possess multiple archetypes or have multiple uh, different. You know, they 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 do have some arrogance, but at the same time, they do solo out. At the same time, you know, they are uh, stuck in their own ways. Where do individuals need to start? Because when you when you get a ton of feedback and you're being self-critical, you tend to see yourself really negatively, or, you know, you see so much is wrong, um, you know, where do individuals need to start their journey to, to start addressing, even if they have multiple archetypes to, um, to approach and overcome?
0: What are one or two things I do well that you'd like to see me even accelerate more? And what are one or two things that I can do better that you think right now are skill gaps or, you know, personality traits I need to work on? ask for one or two good things and ask for one or two development things. When a boss pile drives you with 10 things that are wrong, your your brain can't process it. You really want to focus on one or two places to develop, but you also want to focus on one or two things that you're good at, that you want to be even better at because they're going to become your signature moves. So when I'm giving feedback to people, I always focus on their strengths too, because we don't want to just be only addressing weaknesses developmentally. We want to be taking someone's strengths and helping to magnify them even greater.
1: Again, Carter Cast, author of The Right and Wrong Stuff, How Brilliant Careers Are Made and Unmade. He's also the professor at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. Thank you so much, Carter, for being our guest. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by the Dean of the Kelly School, Heidi Kesner. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.